So this is a tough text. This is going to be fun. Let me uh, first, real quick, uh, just express my, uh, my gratitude for y'all's appreciation. Um, it should do some work in my heart, but not a lot of work in my heart, right? Like God should be enough uh, for me, but I'm very grateful for y'all's appreciation, and uh, I love the little, little tricks, are, and, and I keep finding these all over the place. Um, when I walked in my office this morning, there was a bucket of these waiting on the door, and then when I walked in, they all fell on me, so I keep, um, keep finding those. I'm pretty sure it was Jen. <laughs> Jen and Dave Marsh, I think, I believe. Anyways. Um, but I also appreciate the shirt. In fact, I want to do something. I, I, obviously, I didn't know this was happening. Um, I'd like to take a picture of you guys. Could you all stand? Um, take a picture of you guys. Show off your shirts if you have them. If you don't have a shirt on, just stand anyways, because you know we love you regardless if you wore the shirt or not. Um, but this is a pano, so don't move, all right? Just stay still, because it's going to look very weird if you're in three places at once. And I hope some of you are actually smiling. I didn't actually look at you yet. All right, that's cool. Thank you. That's for a cherished memory. You may be seated. Lord willing, right? Yeah, I, I hope so. So, I, I mean, you already heard the text. It's not going to be an easy morning. I, I, I mean, uh, joking, all, all, seriously, uh, the, the message this morning might turn Pastor Appreciation Month into Pastor Appreciation Morning. Uh, this is not going to be easy. Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty heavy-hearted text. And, and not only that, like we come to our gathering this Sunday uh, with the news of things happening around the world that have a very uh, strong ability to put heaviness on our hearts. Would you agree? With the things that are happening, we've got so much going on. Uh, and, and I kind of come with that heaviness. I've had it for uh, the whole last week, especially uh, since it was eight days ago that everything started with Israel and Hamas, and, and things have just turned chaotic and, and terrible. And the things that are happening there, right, uh, just with uh, the, the Hamas attack, like the numbers are now at like 1,300 dead with uh, 3,200 wounded. Uh, the, the stories of, of women being captured and abused, of infants being beheaded by, by and, and, then, and then not only that, but you see around the world people celebrating that. Like, like shouting, yes, like death to Israel. And then, I mean, what's like just as bad as like Israel's response that is not necessarily discriminating against Hamas and it's attack it's there's attacking like whole villages and, and, and neighborhoods. Fifteen hundred are wounded, seven thousand or sorry, fifteen hundred dead, seven thousand wounded, including women and children in Palestine. I'm not saying they shouldn't respond and, and I don't think that that's I think we need to stop evil as it comes, but I think the biggest question that I think a lot of us are struggling with this morning is, is simply, how can someone celebrate such wickedness? Like, how can someone's heart look at something like that and say, yeah, I'll cheer that on? It's confusing. It's even devastating. And I'll tell you that our text this morning actually speaks to that question. It provides maybe a, an answer for us to consider in all of this as we see so many people celebrating and, and, and applauding such devastating wickedness. The answer that we find in our text today is basically that they've aligned themselves with either the deceptions or the indwelling of the devil. People can celebrate such wickedness because they have been so deceived or so indwelled by the enemy, by the devil. Unfortunately, uh, polls today uh, reveal a church that doesn't believe Satan is real most popularly. That's the, the average statistics, is that most think he's just a force of evil, that he's not necessarily a person or really doesn't have a background or history, but in reality, we're finding in our text today that he is a person and a, and a force altogether. 
And we're going to find somebody in our text today who has been so deceived and opens himself up to the indwelling of the enemy. Happy Pastor Appreciation Day. (laughs) And I'll tell you this, that our text this morning is probably going to terrify some of you. For others of you, it'll shore up your faith. But for others, it's going to wreak havoc. And I'll explain why when we get to it. But there's also a part of our text this morning that is incredibly comforting. And for those of you who have a shored up faith, it will find, you will find comfort in this passage in our text this morning. You can kind of look at the text in three parts. We've got betrayal, we've got love, and then we've got denial. Now, the section on love after, obviously, Judas leaves, Jesus gives this new command. Uh, I give you a new command, love one another as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Uh, the whole world will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another, right? Now, at the beginning of the ser- summer, we did a sermon series called One Another, and we walked through all the different one another's, and the whole series started off with that text. And so, uh, because we've I've already exposited that uh, in a sermon a few months ago. I'm not going to touch on it today, okay? I I have it in my notes too, but based on time, I think we just need to stick to one of the main themes uh, of of the text. So if you want to be, if you're curious about what it all means, uh, go listen to that sermon. It's in the One Another series on our website. You can check it out there on our podcast. But mainly we're going to look at Judas and Peter. Judas is Peter will shock, sorry, that sounded terrible. Judas' Peter will shock. Judas' story will shock you. Peter's story will provide solace for you. We're going to work through this together. But Lord, help. So we know that we just went through uh, the, 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 the first opening scene of the, the Lord's Supper where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Uh, We talked about that last week. In fact, we washed one another's feet last week. It was an incredibly beautiful moment for us. It was a countercultural kind of perspective-flipping moment together. And then we get to verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now, that same trouble, it says he was troubled in his spirit. It's the same word, the same trouble he felt at the graveside of Lazarus when he was moved and troubled in his spirit. He stirred up. And then he says this declaration, one of you will betray me. There was only 12 at the table One of you will betray me. In other words, betrayal meaning to hand over. As this isn't the first time that Jesus has mentioned this, though. He's spoken a few times in reference to the betrayer. Uh, He's mentioned it a few times that there would be a traitor. Uh, You can see in John uh, chapter 6, verse 70 here. Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He's already, he's already hinted at this reality that one of them is not among them, technically. One of them is not one of them in this dinner. He's already mentioned it. Look at verse 18. I'm not going to have it up on the screen. You've got your Bibles open to chapter 13. Look at verse 18. He's already mentioned this. If you do these things, you are blessed. If you, uh, if you, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Verse 17. Verse 18. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. As Jesus there is quoting a passage from the book of Psalm, verse, or chapter 41, verse 9. And it says this, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. That psalm is written by King David. And he wrote this word, most likely referring to David having a, he had a counselor named Ahithophel. Ahithophel ends up turning on David, joining Absalom's rebellion against David. And here's the crazy thing. 
Ahithophel ends his life by suicide. Jesus said, I'm telling you these things so that you know the Scripture will be fulfilled. Indeed, Scripture is being fulfilled. Jesus announces to the twelve that he's walked with for three years, that he called by name and gave them purpose and mission that was eternal. He tells them, one of you is going to hand me over, is going to betray me. Do all the disciples at this point, in response to Jesus' word that one of them is going to betray him, they're like, Oh, wait, wait, it's, it's Judas. It's got to be him. I know Judas, it's that guy. Man, that, that Judas, I've caught him in like five different lies. I've seen him stealing. He's been sleeping around. He's been betting on donkey races. That dude, that dude, it's him. Did they, did they all respond and point fingers? Yeah, it's got to be Judas. He's the one, He'll, it'll be him. Is that how they respond? No. It was not obvious to any of them, who the unbelieving betrayer was among them. It wasn't obvious, and, and this is where I tell you that for some of you, this may start to terrify you. It's a sobering reality. Judas fit in with all of the disciples and no one else knew the true state of his heart except for Jesus. Nobody knew. Look at verse 22 through 25. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, by the way, we're going to pause there for a second. I want to make a comment on that. I've joked a little bit about how John calls himself the one Jesus loved. This is the author of this gospel, and we kind of joke, yeah, I'm the loved one of Jesus, right? And it's kind of, it seems some people think of it as arrogance, when in reality, he never refers to himself in the first person. He never says, I or me. He always puts his identity in the context of this astounding reality that he's actually loved by Jesus. And how humbling that is. And that's your identity. It's not about you, it's about the fact that Jesus loves you. And so we get to this first use, and John the Apostle is next to Jesus, reclining close beside him. Verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to John to find out who it was he was talking about. So the beloved disciple, John, leans back against Jesus and asks him, Hey, Lord, Lord, who, who is it? But, but can we sit in this for a second? Like, do you see how remarkable it is that everyone at that table besides Jesus did not know Judas was unbelieving and would be a traitor to Jesus. Like, that's terrifying. Now, now does that mean our response ought to be to hold every one of you suspect? No, no, that's not the right response. Only Jesus can judge the heart, ultimately. But Jesus also says you can tell a, a tree by its fruit right? Now, John's asked for the identity of the betrayer, and Jesus makes the identity known, but not to all the disciples, only to John and likely to Peter, depending on how you read it. Verse 26, Jesus replied, the betrayer, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, He gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Now, for you and I, we can read into our text the fact that we already knew, right? We've actually known for several chapters now that Judas was going to hand Jesus over to the authorities. It started in chapter 6. It's mentioned several times. But But one or two disciples find out right now that Judas is a traitor, an unbelieving traitor. 
Now we're going to talk about Judas more in application, but I want to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because this is what's so crazy about this. We'll look at, I want to look at Jesus' action here. This is the last encounter that Jesus has freely to deal with Judas before the next time Judas comes up and signals that this is the man to be arrested by a kiss. This is, Jesus has one, like one last word, one last thing that he can do or say to Judas in this, in this part of his life. And, 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 and what does he do? Some of us slap the face, repent, right? Don't do it. No, actually, Jesus' final act to Judas is an act of love, high honor, and friendship. This wasn't just some simple, hey, here's an idea, let me just dip this in and hand it to him to signal it. No, in reality, this was normal for a host to host people at his table and then to take a piece of bread, a morsel of bread, dip it, and then to hand it to one of his friends was a signal of high honor and love. Guys, Jesus didn't just wash his disciples' feet, including Judas's. He honors Judas. He loves Judas. You know, we saw in verse 1 of chapter 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved Judas to the end. It's an astounding reality. It makes us sit and look at Jesus and say, man, you are truly better. Loving your enemies. I can't see it on fuller display than right there. Now, continuing on with this story. Judas is now identified as the betrayer. We've known it for a while. We've known that Judas hasn't actually believed in Jesus. We find that out in John 6, uh, 64 through 71, that Judas never actually truly believed in Jesus. We also find out in chapter 13 in verses 10 through 11 where we've just been that not... That Judas was the one who was not clean. Jesus said, all of you are clean. One who is bathed doesn't need to wash except any, uh, anything except his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. He's already declared that Judas is not washed, not cleansed. And then not only that, but we see in verse 18 that, that, that Judas was not one of those that Jesus had truly uh, chosen, that had not been given to him from the Father. Look at verse 18. I am not speaking about all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. He's, he's, he's talking about Judas here. This has been the state of Judas's heart for a while. And this is what's even more shocking, that, that Judas got to see Jesus with his own eyes. That Judas saw the clearest evidence of the lordship, of the deity, of the reality of Christ. He saw it. Not only that, but with his own ears, he heard the finest teaching and preaching, the truest teaching and preaching from he who is the word. With his own feet, he follows the greatest example that has ever walked this earth. And yet, this man still betrays Jesus. As I, I can't help but see the, the stark similarities between Judas and Peter. Because the two are mentioned in this text very specifically. Think about how they're 
so alike. Think about their similarities for a second. Both Judas and Peter were loved by Jesus. Both Judas and Peter followed Jesus. Both Judas and Peter had seen Jesus' works and heard Jesus' words firsthand. Gets even crazier. Both Judas and Peter participated in the works and the words of Jesus. If you can remember in Luke chapter 9, Jesus gathers his 12 together, and it says that he gives them authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to preach the gospel. Both Judas and Peter had authority over demons. They healed the sick. They preached the good news that Jesus has been preaching. Both Judas and Peter were well-known followers of Jesus. In fact, all the other followers of Jesus knew that they were followers of Jesus. In fact, both Judas and Peter had respective leadership roles among the following of Jesus. Judas was a money keeper. He was the treasurer. What's even crazier is that both Judas and Peter have major moral failings in their relationship with Jesus. Judas is an act of hatred and betrayal. Peter is an act of apathy and denial. I don't know how to explain how severe both of those are, except for putting it in a context. And I've actually been debating the sharing this, and I think it makes sense now. It's, let's say, uh, my wife, right? Let's say there was a hostile crew wanting to go after my wife and to ruin her life. Judas would connect the crew to my wife, would hand her over, Picture Peter's. Peter sees his wife held hostage and under condemnation by the crew, and they come and they approach him and says, do you know this person? And he says, no. Both are incredibly devastating moral failures. One of apathy, one of hatred. So here's the shocking component of this. Here's the stark reality of this that changes and hopefully wakes up a lot of us. The stark reality is that somebody can look like a follower of Jesus and actually be a son of Satan. Someone can look really good on the outside when in everything inside is just death. Why do you think Jesus called people or called the, especially the Jewish leaders whitewashed tombs? You dress up death. It's like putting makeup on a corpse. Someone can look like a follower of Jesus and not actually know Jesus. We know this. This is, this is something that comes from a very hard passage in Matthew 7 that says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Did you hear that? Didn't we prophesy in your name, preaching the gospel? Didn't we uh, drive out demons? We had authority over demons, and we did it in your name, and, and we, had, uh, we did miracles. People were healed, and we did it in your name. 
Jesus says, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. People can look really good. They can look like they follow Jesus, but their heart is full of death. In fact, that's some of the things that Jesus warns about in Matthew 7 as well. He, he warns about false prophets dressed as sheep, but they're wolves. Sheep, they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. So here's, here's the, the main truth that all of this ought to start waking us up to. Is that religious activity is not the same as saving faith. Religious activity is not the same as saving faith. Guys, all the time, when I ask, like, and I think it's a very common conversation for us to have, hey, uh, was that family member saved? Like, is, do you, is this person saved, like rescued? In other words, have they placed their faith in Jesus? And the response that I get time and time again is about their religious activity. Well, they, 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 they go to church. They, uh, uh, they, they grew up in the church. They, they, well, they read their, their Bibles every now and then. Uh, they, they did Christian-looking things. They helped the old lady cross the street. Uh, they gave this and, and did that, right? And, and you keep kind of building the resume of their religious activity, And that's not the gospel. That's not what makes you right before God. That's not the answer you give when you go before Jesus. Like that group. Hey, we did all of these things in the name of Jesus. I never knew you. Guys, your religious activity, your involvement in church, your actions of righteousness and the things that you do are not what save you. They're not what you tell God as when, when he asks, like, why, why, why should I let you in? Like, like, that's not the response you give. You don't build up your resume and hold up your good works and say everything that you did, the only acceptable, pleasing response to God is you say everything Jesus did is enough. And my faith is simply I'm shifting all of my confidence onto him. I trust nothing in me to save me. It's all God and him alone in Christ. But what happens is, the gospel is about the saving faith. The gospel is that you can be rescued from separation from God now and forever simply by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ, in the, in the free gift that is Jesus and all that he won for us. You are rescued by that. But what this does is it, it confuses the gospel with the effects of the gospel, what the gospel does. When you come to faith in Christ, man, he starts getting involved in every part of your life. He gets to determine what you do on Sunday mornings. He gets to determine what you turn your radio station to. He gets to determine how you respond to attacks in Israel and Hamas. He gets to determine everything about you. But all of that is the effects not the cause. Those things don't save you. We are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that stays alone. Guys, what we're after this morning is, is testing where our confidence lies. What saves? It's the grace of Jesus Christ that comes to us by our faith. So where is your confidence? Where have you placed all of your confidence? 
that makes you acceptable to God. That's the test this morning. That's the hardship, the hard question this morning. Where does your confidence and where does your allegiance lie? Our confidence is not in our religious activity. And our confidence isn't even in our faith. In the ability of our faith to be strong or weak. No, our faith is in what our faith is in. Our confidence is in who our faith is in. Regardless of how strong or weak. So not only is this a test of where our confidence lies because Judas fit right in with everyone else. He looked the part. He faked it, but didn't make it. But this also challenges us to ask the question, where does our allegiance lie? Where do our loyalties lie? Because we keep going in this passage and we're discovering that in reality, Judas is simply just a puppet. He's only a bit player. There's something, someone more powerful is pulling the strings, deceiving the heart. It turns out that we find in this text that Judas isn't just simply being deceived. He's also being indwelt by the devil. Look at verse 27. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. So not only does this tough text force us to test where our confidence lies because it can't be in our ability to perform enough religious works. It's simply in Christ alone. But it's also asking us who we're loyal to and who we stay loyal to. We find out that Judas was actually aligning his allegiance with Lucifer, Satan. Judas was allowing himself to be deceived by Satan But not only that, we find out that he's going to be indwelled by Satan, possessed by Satan. We find out exactly where Judas' allegiance lies. It's to the prince of darkness. Now, there's something quite small that I hope you didn't miss. Because though Judas was filled with Satan, possessed by Satan. There's just something freaking awesome in this text. Look at it. After Satan entered him, Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Jesus wasn't talking to Judas. He was talking to Satan. And sold out to Satan, though Judas was, he can't help but still obey Jesus. He has no recourse but to actually obey Jesus. After Satan enters into Judas, Judas is, is, has no recourse but to respond. Jesus demonstrates his authority over all things by telling Satan to leave and just do what you're going to do quickly. Because you and I both know that, G, that what Satan devised for evil, Jesus is saying, watch me work this for their good. Watch what I can do with all of your plans. Even at this moment, Jesus is still in control. He's not this powerless pawn in the struggle between good and evil. He's not this tragic figure betrayed by his old friend. No, he 
He was and he is the son of God who marches to the cross in full and complete control of every event that led to it. Guys, sometimes we get this so backwards in the, in the battle between good and evil, in the battle between light and dark, in the battle between uh, Satan and Jesus, though we're not dualists, there's no duel there. Jesus can speak a word and foul the enemy. But we get it so wrong sometimes. So many times we fear that Satan is going to somehow have secret access to God's children and that Jesus is only limited by whether or not you're willing to open the door to him. You flipped the authority. Jesus has all authority. He gets secret access to God's children. Satan does not have authority over us. Only access Satan has is if Jesus wills it. If Jesus allows it. But we find out here that Judas makes his decision. Verse uh, 28. None of those reclining at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. They still didn't realize what Judas' plans were. Since Judas kept the money back, some thought he was going to tell, he was telling them, buy what we need for the festival, or he should give something to the poor. But after receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately left, and it was night. Darkness had come. And when Judas walks out of that candlelit room into the dark street, he's walking away from the light of the world. And as that door shuts behind him, his fate is sealed. He's turned his back on the only source of life. This is the end of Judas. He chose darkness over light. He chose death over life. And with this example, we have to challenge ourselves and ask the really tough question. Where are my loyalties? I'm not saying your loyalties are to Satan, but they can be to yourself, moreover than Jesus. They can be a two a hobby or a team or a dream, a.k.a. the American dream. Your loyalties can be so divided, especially among things that seem so easy and good by themselves, when in reality they have consumed you. Guys, Judas's life and example is a challenge not designed to create terror in us, to question our, our, uh, our assurance of our salvation. But it is to test your heart and to evaluate where your allegiances lie. This is nothing new, though. You've heard the text in 2 Corinthians 13 where Paul challenges the church to test yourselves, to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? We are to test ourselves. Examine our hearts. Examine our loyalties. Hold our hearts with an open hand, not a closed fist. Now, it's amazing that after this text that challenges us, the very next thing he says is the new command, love one another as I have loved you. This is how everyone's going to know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a test, your loves. Where your confidence is, where your loyalties lie, where your loves are directed. Now, we can keep going because we get to Peter, right? Peter um, 
finds out that Jesus is leaving. And remember, this was in the context of the reality that Jesus had invited them to follow him. Their world is shaking now because Jesus just said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me yet. And Peter's like really confused. He forgets the the new commandment. He's like, wait, wait, Jesus, where are you going? I'll follow you. You just tell me where you're going. Why can't I follow you? And then he makes a declaration. I will lay my life down for you. And a lot of us look at that as like smugness, as like, meh, man, he's prideful. What else was he supposed to say? He finds out his his Messiah, his Lord, his teacher is leaving. Was, what a better response has been, oh, you're going? I'll just get back to fishing then. Would that have been better? No, no, no. His allegiance, his loyalties are to Jesus. I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. What he failed to assess was his strength to obey. But I think you and I can relate to that, can't we? We find ourselves in Peter here. We can make declarations of radical devotion to Jesus on Sunday morning and then Monday morning wake up and find ourselves confused as to what day it is and why we live because it's Monday. There's so much where our intentions can outpace our actual strength. So Peter makes this declaration, I'll lay my life down for you. And then verse 38, so ironic. Jesus replies, (laughs) Will you lay down your life for me? You hear the irony? No, I came here to do that. You're not doing that for me. I came here to do it for you. That's why I called you. I've come to lay down my life for you, not the other way around. That's the irony. But what's crazy is, what's crazy is Peter does end up laying down his life for him. He gets crucified upside down according to church tradition. But instead of radical self-sacrificing devotion, Peter has a moment where he shows heartbreaking self-serving denial. It's foretold by Jesus that Peter was going to deny Jesus. And I already told you how intense of a moral failure that is in relation to Jesus. It's another great moral failure. Now, don't hear hear me. I'm I'm actually not saying they're the same, but they're both really great in their moral failures. But why... Why does Peter, with his moral failure, not end up like Judas with his? Why why doesn't Peter's end with self-condemning destruction, just as Judas's did? Well, that's where the gospel comes in. You see, Judas had set his love on Satan. Peter still had his love on Jesus, despite his moral failures. Judas set his heart to oppose Jesus. Peter chose loyalty to Jesus. Judas walked into the night. Peter stayed near the light. Judas was covert in all of his operations. Peter was over in all that he said. Judas's allegiance was to Satan. Peter's allegiance was to Jesus. Judas was the son of destruction. Peter was a son of the light. Judas was possessed by the deceiver. Peter was consumed by the deliverer. You hear the difference? Peter stayed with the light, even though everything that he, had, that he does in this prediction would condemn him. Jesus had already said that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Why wasn't that the case then? Because Peter stayed in the light of the love of Jesus that covers a multitude of sin. He stayed in it. He stayed where it's warm. He stayed where it's light. Even though it exposed who he was, he said, no, I'm okay. I'm going to stay close to this Jesus because I can't find life and light in anywhere else. It's only in Jesus. It's only here. 
And so what I find here, if Judas was one way to terrorize us in, in one sense and cause us to test and question, we come over to here to Peter and we find, man, there's such an incredible solace because I know so many of us have dealt with moral failings. I know so many of us would have a ledger long that would go out the back door of all the things that we've done that we would just say, man, I have every reason to be guilty. I have every reason to be rejected by the Lord. I have every reason to be hated and mocked and scorned. But in the light of Jesus' love, every wrong is covered by his blood. Guys, even the gravest of sin can be forgiven. In the light of Jesus' love, that is incredible joy and hope. This is what John, the author of this gospel, writes in his letter. He says, but if anyone does sin, if you're a Peter, which how many of you has sinned? Yeah, everybody should have their hand up. If you don't know, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll, I'll ask a few questions. You'll find out real quick how, how broken you are, right? Uh, just go through the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the fire, Father. We've got a lawyer. We've got somebody who's pleading a case before the judge. And the, the case is not your goodness. It's not your participation in what happens here. The case is the cross. The case is Jesus' blood. And whether or not it's covered you, Jesus pleads with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Guys, this is the good news. You you thought this was just going to end with testing and terror and like, oh man, woe is me. Am I really in the faith? Right? If this is good news to you, if this is where your confidence lies, then this is a credible source of solace for you, of comfort for you, especially in the late nights when you're struggling with the things that you messed up that day, or in the next morning when you wake up and you're wondering, am I just going to mess up as bad as I did yesterday? I I don't know if you're the only ones who think that way. I think that way sometimes. I'm wondering how bad it's going to get, but the good news is that forgiveness is freely available forever. So just, like, don't wander from the light. Stay close. Stay near Jesus. Put your loyalties to him, not to your own strength and ability to obey. Put your loyalties on him. Put all of your confidence on him. Give him all of your love. Stay in the light. Feel the warmth. Don't wander. Don't walk into the night. Don't follow the invitations and the deceptions of Satan into self-condemnation and overwhelming guilt. Stay in the light. Stay loyal to the Lord because he's already set his love on you. No matter how much you've messed up, no matter how much you feel like a failure, And we'll talk more about Peter as we get to the text, to the rest of his story. But for now, I think you need to do some work, and I need to do some work in our hearts to examine where our confidence is, where our our loyalties lie, where our loves are directed. Because there's always room to grow. I don't think you've ever arrived at having a perfect heart. You will one day in the presence of Jesus. But for right now, let's examine ourselves. So I just ask that you would bow your heads and, and, and respond to what Paul challenged us to do. Test ourselves. Examine our hearts. Some of you this morning may have just found out some hard truths about where your confidences have been. You've been placing your confidence in your successes at work. You've been placing your confidences in what kind of wealth you can build. You've been placing your confidence in how much good works you do and how much you participate in church stuff, whether you go, whether you volunteer or serve. And you're realizing that your confidence is misplaced. 
the only response to that kind of conviction is to throw all of your trust, put the anchor of your trust into the ocean of Jesus, of his love, of his grace, and his sacrifice. And if that's the move that you make today, that would make this pastor's heart incredibly happy. Let's pray. Father, I pray by your spirit, in the name of Jesus, that anything that was not truth this morning would float away with the wind like dust. God, whatever was true, whatever was honorable, whatever is just and pure and right and good and beautiful, plant it deep within us. May we not have the arrogance to put our confidence in ourselves before you. May you humble us today to throw ourselves totally on your mercy and grace. As you examine our hearts with us, God, I pray that you would expose false loyalties, misordered loves and affection. Test our hearts, God. We want to be laid bare before you because we want to walk with you and we want all of our lives to align with your word. So I pray, do that work in us this morning. God, we love you. We're loyal to you. We give our lives for you, for your causes, for your mission. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you. If you get to hang around a little bit, I think there's some refreshments out there for all of you to partake in, and uh, there's some good fellowship that will also be waiting for you, because you know Everyone here is important to you in your life. Uh, Everyone here is good for you. And so hang around a little bit and get to know these people a little bit more. Uh, If you do need prayer, if something this morning really uh, poked at you, I'd love to pray with you. I know our prayer team would love to pray for healing over those who need healing or encouragement, but don't leave today without receiving that care. The benedictory prayer that I want to pray over you comes from Romans 8. For I am sure, I am confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's our hope. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Love you. Have an incredible week.